thankful to be able to serve you this morning out of the book of Ezra. If you'd like to turn there, please turn to the book of Ezra. Hopefully you have the bulletin. We are continuing with the series Arise, Move, and Go, part 18. And the title of the message this morning is Come Ye Out from Among Them, here in Ezra chapter 1. The context is about 536 B.C. Ezra, who records these things, and most of our scholars would be in agreement that the book of Ezra was written by Ezra himself. He was a priest and a scribe. And he was said in the seventh chapter of Ezra to be one who prepared himself and sought the law of God in order to be able to teach it to the people of God. God used him mightily. And the theme of Ezra is God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to his word. We see this here even in the very first verse of Ezra chapter 1 that God fulfilled the promise that he had made in years past that he would come and deliver his people from Babylonian captivity. And that goes along with the name Ezra. The name Ezra signifies help or Yahweh helps. And God is an ever-present help for his people, is he not? Absolutely. And we worship him because he is. Amen. So if you look at the first point on your outline... It says new ownership by sovereign decree, new ownership. And really what we see here is the sovereign power and the sovereign hand of God to bring in a new ruler named Cyrus, who was a Medo-Persian ruler. He was a pagan ruler who didn't know God from the man on the moon. And yet God moved this man because God is in control of the elect and the non-elect, isn't he? The sovereign God of the Bible, to be sovereign means to have unrivaled authority. It means that God is in control of everything, everywhere, all the time. So God takes this heathen, pagan king, moves him according to verse 1, stirs him up in his spirit, and causes him not only to come in and take over the kingdom over Babylon, but to issue a decree to set God's people free. And this was all according to God's original design. So if you look under the first point here, it says a successive four beast rule by sovereign decree and by the God of history. So I want you to see in Daniel 7, if you'll please turn with me to the seventh chapter of Daniel. And I want us to see the sovereign power of God in action And this actually corresponds to the vision that Daniel had while he was in Babylon. The early part of Daniel shows King Nebuchadnezzar having visions and dreams, and then Daniel begins to have his own. And if you're in Daniel chapter 7, I want you to see Daniel's vision. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. Does everybody see that there? The winds here signify the sovereign power of God. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3, where he talks about a person being born again, and he says, he he talks about it in John chapter 3, verse 8, he says, the wind blows where it listeth. 
Thou heareth the sound, but canst not tell whence it comes and whither it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit of God. So this text here would underscore the power and the sovereignty of the Spirit of God who controls all things, all events from the four corners of the globe. And these winds, as it were, are now moving upon the waters. If we can get that verse back up there, it's moving upon the waters. And we've learned that the waters in the scripture represent peoples, represents multitudes and nations of people. The Spirit of God is now blowing on these water, waters and then he brings up four beasts. And so it says here, Daniel uh, spake and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of the heavens drove upon the great sea. And then verse three, we'll see God's sovereignty over the political nations of the world. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. These four beasts would correspond to the four worldwide uh, uh, ruling kingdoms. Kingdom number one would be Babylon. Kingdom number two would be Medo-Persia. That's where we are in our text. Kingdom number three would be the Grecian uh, empire that came in under Alexander the Great. And then the last one that is described as diverse from all the other kingdoms in Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7 would be the kingdom of who? Rome. We're in beast number two in our text in Ezra. And just as God purposed and decreed, the Medo-Persians would come in and begin to take over the kingdom. So let's go ahead and go back to our text. So there are no accidents. This is why we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in happenstance and fortune. We believe in a sovereign God who controls all things, don't we? That's right. So God is bringing in new ownership. And this new ownership comes in and gives a decree to arise, move and go. That the people of God are now to be liberated, set free, equipped with everything necessary to go back to their home and build the temple in Jerusalem. This sounds awesome, but in the midst of God's grace and his faithfulness to redeem his people, there's a problem in the midst. There's a problem in the midst. There's a major problem with the people of God that are in Babylon at this time. God's people in Babylon were pretty comfortable. God's people in Babylon had become assimilated, as it were, to the culture. They had come to identify with Babylon even more than Jerusalem. Many of the citizens of Judah were doing very well in Babylon. Many of the citizens there were prospering financially, prospering economically. Many of them owned homes. Many of them owned property. Many of them owned fields and businesses. If I can get Jeremiah chapter 29, I want to show you on the overhead. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 6. Many of them were doing very well. Now put yourself in their shoes. You're doing well. You're making six figures and everything's going well and the, the money is coming in. You're not really struggling. And all of a sudden new ownership comes in and say, hey, it's time for you to go. And you're like, go where? Right. I'm doing I'm doing OK. My bank account is full. Uh, my family's healthy. I've got a property. I own lands. Right. I'm doing well commercially. Well, Jeremiah 29, it says, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives. These are who we're talking about here in Babylon, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. So God ultimately superintended that, didn't he? And then verse five. Verse five, it says, build ye houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. And they did. And one of the reasons God tells him that is because he wants them to. Be comfortable because you're going to be down there for a while. 
because there were false prophets like Hananiah in Jeremiah 28 that says you're only going to be down there a couple of years. That's the prosperity message that, that can't hold its weight and doesn't match up with scripture. And so God killed that man a few months later. If you read Jeremiah chapter 28, God says, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, my word shall come to pass and, 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 and my word doesn't vary or alter. Get comfortable. You're going to be down there for 70 years. Go on ahead and, and, and marry off your children and, and uh, buy homes and buy land and get comfortable and get settled because you're going to be down there a while. And they did. And then one more verse. It goes on to say in verse six, he says, take ye wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, that they may be increased there and not diminished. God is still keeping a track of the promise that he made to Abraham back in the beginning when this whole thing started, that Abraham would have a seed that would number like the dust of the earth, the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And even in Israel's rebellion and sin, God is still being faithful to the covenant because God still has an elect people to be saved, but they got to be born into the world first. And so even though Israel was tearing it up, God was still fulfilling his purposes. So the people of God are here is seen in this context doing well. And then remember, they've been down there for 70 years. A lot of people forgot about the worship of God. One of the reasons why we have the table, at least in our church in Sacramento, at Way of Grace, we have it every month. I believe we have it every month here. It's to remind us of what Christ did to save us. From God's wrath by his body being broken and his blood being shed to atone for our sins. We, don't we need to hear it over and over again? Because we are forgetful, aren't we? Because we are ruined by the noetic effects of sin. And our minds are like wicker baskets and the word comes down like water and it goes through the pores. So we got to keep hearing it over and over again, don't we? That's right. That's right. Here's the other problem. You're in Babylon and you've been there. If you're under 70, you don't really know much about worship in Israel, because if you're under 70, that would be all you know. So I also see an inherent problem here and the implications are likely that the upline in many cases didn't pass the gospel torch down to the downline. Lord, keep us from being guilty of that. Our children don't belong to us. They belong to God. We're just borrowing them. And when we stand before the great white throne of judgment, we will have to give an account for how we raised our children. Did you tell them about me? We raised them in the fear of the Lord because they got to meet the true and the living God and they need a perfect righteousness, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. So we got to preach it to them. And here's the other thing. Many of us can relate with those that were in Babylon uh, uh, and we're born there and we're under 70 years old, they grew up outside of a gospel home. And many of us, and I know I can't speak for every single person in the room, but there's probably a good number of us that didn't hear the gospel in our household. Some of us didn't hear the gospel until later. I didn't hear the gospel till I was about 25. So a lot of us are kind of, and some of us are, some of you were blessed and you heard the gospel in the womb, like our elder said, and the word was being preached. You were doing backflips in the womb like John the Baptist came out full of the Holy Ghost. But not all of us did. Some of us tore it up for a while and we had to get rescued. We were under the wrath of God sinning against his kindness and grace. And he came and delivered us and drew us to Jesus Christ. And so there were many there that did not know the gospel and hadn't learned it. Here's the other dynamic. Some people are just lazy. Like I ain't going nowhere to build nothing. Building sounds 
strenuous and laborious. That sounds like a lot of sweat and pain, calluses. I'm not going. Right. And so you have that dynamic, too. And a lot of people, we can make the application, will not come to Christ and won't follow him because the road of faith is hard. Narrow is the way and straight is the gate that leads unto life. And only a few there be that find it. Now, out of all of the population of the people of God that were in Babylon, did you know there was only a small group, a small remnant that came out? A very small. There were three returns. There was number one, the return under Zerubbabel. Number two, there was a subsequent return later under Ezra. You can read it in Ezra chapter seven. And then there was a third return under Nehemiah in your own time. You can read that in Nehemiah chapter two. But in comparison, per capita to all the people of God that decided to stay down in Babylon, there was a small remnant that actually came out. And it's the same today. God has a remnant according to the election of grace. So many of them stayed. Here's the other thing that is interesting. We're really talking about a neo exodus again. And I want to get the map up if we can get the map up. I want you to see a map. And the people knew this. Guess how far they would have to go? About 900 miles. And you're talking, some estimates say that the journey would have been about three or four months. And, and they didn't have cars with, you know, heat and air conditioning and, and all that. And they didn't have planes and buses and stuff. They, they were walking or on, on mules, right? That's a long trip. And that didn't sound very appealing to most of the people. Good. If you can see this map up here, the upper uh, um, uh, right, just to the right of the middle there, Babylon, Babylonia. This is the region where they are. And you can see that red line that goes up and around. It has to go around because that that middle area is mountainous. So they would have to kind of go around and up. You see the river Euphrates up there and uh, Rezef and Aleppo and then all the way up and then all the way down past Damascus, finally into the region of Judah. And then they had to go down south because Judah is the southern part of Israel. That's that's a serious trip, isn't it? Right. And so you're talking about eight between 800 and 900 miles, months and months of journeys. And then you'd have to worry about robbers and marauders and wild animals and wild beasts and hot temperatures and all those things. Right. And so that would cause a lot of people to kind of hesitate. That would cause a lot of people to hesitate, just like the first exodus when people were in the wilderness and they were beginning to question the goodness and faithfulness of God, even though he met all of their needs. Their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never wore out. He gave them cold, fresh water out of a rock. And that rock is Jesus Christ. It was smitten under the rod of Moses, which points to Christ, who was smitten under the law of God to pay for our sins in order to pour out the water of everlasting life. He met all their needs and watered the cattle and gave them hot biscuits out of the sky, didn't he? And fried chicken, church's chicken in the wilderness. They had no reason to complain. That chicken was was hot. It was good. And yet they complained. So now I have a question for you. With all these things being said, forget about the fried chicken, because that might change how you respond to this. But with all that being said, how would you have responded? You don't have to answer that out loud. You can just kind of think about that and respond rhetorically. Would you have left? You were doing well and you own those things and you were prosperous. Would you have left? The question is, are you presently leaving? Because we do have new ownership. His name is Jesus Christ and he's coming to call his people out of the world. Have you heard him? 
And are you coming out of Babylon to Jesus Christ? That's the question. In order for you to leave, you've, you have to be Zerubbabelian. Zerubbabelian. It was Zerubbabel that led the first return out of Babylon back into the land of Israel. And I want you to know something about Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's name actually means one who was born in Babylon. And yet, even though he was physically born in Babylon, he acknowledged that he had dual citizenship. Because though he was physically born in Babylon, he was spiritually born in heavenly Jerusalem. And he was a believer in the true and the living God. And we'll see him in a minute. In fact, if you go to verse 8, Cyrus entrusted all the treasures and the resources into the hand of a man named Sheshbazzar. Some of these names are tough, huh? I was like, go ahead, Elder, you get this. (laughs) These days are tough. Verse 8, it says, even those did Cyrus... The king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazzar. I want you to know that Sheshbazzar there is Zerubbabel. Sheshbazzar was actually one of his Persian names. It was very common in the culture for uh, people to have two and three names. This is uh, referring to Zerubbabel, and the name Sheshbazzar is also in verse 11. But Sheshbazzar saw himself, as all believers do, as a sojourner. In fact, go to verse 4. It says, whosoever, this is the king's decree, whosoever remains in any place where he what? Sojourns. The only way you'll come out is if you see yourself as a sojourner. You and I have to be reminded that this world is not our home. We are pilgrims and what? Sojourners. Just what? Passing through, crossing over, arising, moving and going because you and I who are in Christ are spiritual Hebrews making our pilgrimage to heavenly Jerusalem. Isn't that true? And so therefore, he was able to lead many that came out. And then verse five. The only way you and I, you and I will come out is by the grace of God. Isn't that true? Look at verse five. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God raised. You and I must be quickened and raised from spiritual deadness to come out of this world. This is all a work of the grace of God. Isn't that true? That's the only way it will happen. Let me say one more thing about this man, Sheshbazzar, who is actually Zerubbabel. I want to show you two verses and we'll go to point number two, Haggai. If I can get Haggai 1-1 up. There are actually two men. Um, and if you're, yeah, you're still in Ezra. Look at chapter two, verse one, while we get Haggai verse one up. Ezra two, verse one, it says, now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away unto Babylon and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah and everyone unto his city. Now look at verse two, which came with who? Zerubbabel. That's right. And who? Jeshua. Those were the two leaders that facilitated the first return to Jerusalem. I want you to remember those names, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Who is Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. The son of Shealtiel and Joshua was the son of Josedek. He was the high priest. So guess what? We had a ruler and a priest leading us out. We had a king and a priest leading us out. We had a male Kesedekian high priest leading us out. Who does that point to? 
Jesus Christ. Isn't he king of kings and Lord of lords and the high priest of God who ever liveth to make intercession for our sins? Those two men together point to one man, Jesus Christ, and only can he lead us out. Isn't that true? Watch Haggai because uh, he's a contemporary. <clears throat> it says in the second year of Darius, the king Darius was Cyrus's uncle. In the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the what? Governor of Judah. Isn't Jesus Christ the governor of Judah, the lion that sprang out of the tribe of Judah? Yes. And to Joshua, the son of Josedech, the high priest. It was those two men that led them out. Now, I want you to know something beautiful about Zerubbabel. Matthew 1, 13, if we can get that verse up, please. And it is in the genealogy. Zerubbabel is in the genealogy. Zerubbabel is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. I hope I had enough grace in there. (laughs) Right. And he came out because Christ was in him. Because the seed, Jesus came into the world through Zerubbabel. And the seed of Christ dwells in all those who believe on him. Are you Zerubbabelian? You believe the gospel, you are. Look at it. And the New Testament is spelled a little bit different. And Zerubbabel begot Abiud. And Abiud begot Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Azor. He's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's really awesome. All right, let's go to the next point. Point number two is the immutable and unalterable faithfulness of Yahweh. That's point number two in our text. And I hope you're back in Ezra chapter One, you can see it in verse one. This is what I think is remarkable. Cyrus is a heathen Medo-Persian king, and yet he calls God Yahweh. Check it out. Verse one. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, this is Cyrus the second historically, or he was also called Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord, that's Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. Verse two, thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, the who? The Lord God. What a remarkable revelation the spirit of God had to have given to Cyrus for him to not merely call God God, which he did in subsequent verses. Verse three. But he also calls him Yahweh. He calls him Yahweh. Yahweh would underscore the perfections of God, namely his eternality. And his self-existence, his immutability, his aseity, and his faithfulness to keep covenant. That's the God we worship who can't lie, change, or fail. And always comes through for his people even when we fail to come through. He remains faithful, doesn't he? He's a rock that we can lean on. We can hope in him. He always keeps his promises. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? Isn't that the guy we lean on? That's right. And Ezra's underscoring this because like clockwork, just like God said he would, he showed up at the end of 70 years and he said, arise, move and go. Now, for true believers, when we know him as Yahweh, we can know he will always remain faithful, even when we're not perfectly faithful. And he promises to be with you and I and deliver you through whatever troubles and afflictions come into your life. This means 
as the Babylonian governmental authorities in our day begin to clamp down on us and hostile socialistic antichrist agendas begin to encroach upon the church, we will have to stand up against it and suffer. But God will show up and show out when we do it. We will suffer, but he will be with us in the suffering. He will grace us. He'll give us the strength. He'll give us the courage. He'll give us the boldness. He'll give us a mouth when we need to speak up for the truth. He will. Turn with me. Let me show you. Jeremiah 25, please. I want us to consider the faithfulness of God who always does what he says he's going to do. That's why I love him. That's why I love him, because he can't lie and he always keeps his promises. Now, Jeremiah 25, you'll see the promises that he made to Jeremiah about Israel going down into Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 25, I hope you're there. I'm going to have you start at verse 11. Jeremiah 25, we'll look at a couple verses in, in Jeremiah. And then if we can just put it up on the overhead, Daniel 9, 2. Okay, if you're in Jeremiah 25, watch what he says in verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation. So he's uh, uh, promising to bring the Chaldeans in and punish them. And as an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? There it is. Seventy years. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon. See, the king of Babylon wasn't sovereign. God raised him up to chasten the people of God. And then God raised up to chasten him. He was God's chastening stick, and then God chastened the stick that did the chastening. That's right. And then he says, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. And then verse 13, and I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all nations. One more, chapter 29, please, if you can turn to... Jeremiah chapter 29. Yes, here it is. Verse 10. For thus saith the Lord that after how long? Seventy years be accomplished at Babylon. I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and causing you to return to this place. So the instrument of their liberation was this heathen man named Cyrus that God sovereignly chose to use. And I love the consistency of the word of God. I'm getting ready to get into that. That's one of my favorite topics. I'm going to touch on that in a minute. But uh, Daniel says the same thing. Daniel 9, 2 on the overhead. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood not by visions and dreams and signs and wonders. I understood by books. See that? God gave him the revelation through the scriptures. And God has given you and I the word of God in order to speak to us through the inscripturated word of God, meaning you and I are not to lean on feelings and impulses and and signs and wonders and sightings. But we're to lean wholly on the word of God. God's word is inerrant. God's word is voracious. God's word is trustworthy. And we can lean on it. He says, I understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet, that he would accomplish Seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So what we see, we can go back to Ezra in our text is God is coming through on his promise just as he said he would. And as you turn back to Ezra chapter one, again, Ezra 
And one of the primary themes of the book of Ezra is the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God to his covenant and to his word. Point number three says Cyrus, a great type and foreshadow of Jesus Christ. I I really, really, really love this one. I love looking for Jesus in all the scriptures, don't y'all? I love it. I love it. And I love when the spirit of God gives me grace to see the person and work of Jesus Christ in all the scriptures. Because our elder was right. Jesus is in Ezra. Jesus is in Ezra. And I hope you see him through Cyrus. Now, what does Cyrus's name mean? Cyrus in Persian actually signifies a a few different things. One of those is sun. S-U-N, like the sun in the sky. And doesn't the Bible refer to Jesus as the son of righteousness that came with healing in his wings in Malachi? And didn't Jesus say, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And what was it that illuminated the universe in day one of creation and day two of creation and day three of creation? What day was the sun made? As in Genesis one, day four, day four. But day one, God said, let there be light. And there was light. There was no sun on day one, no sun on day two, no sun on three on day three. No, no S-U-N, but there was an S-O-N. The light that emanated the universe came from the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Cyrus here is a picture of that light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Cyrus is interesting, too. That Hebrew word is karesh, karesh, and it's the Latinized form of the Greek kiros, which is which symbolizes Lord or master. Very similar to kyrios in the New Testament. He's a great picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Now, I want you to see something beautiful. If we can get Isaiah 44, 28 up, Isaiah 44, 28. And I hope you can see your heavenly husband. Did we have rules of engagement last night? Okay. since we're talking about husbands and wives, I I hope and pray that you can see your heavenly husband here in Cyrus and also here because Cyrus is here, too. But we want to see past the earthly Cyrus to see the heavenly Cyrus, the Lord Jesus the Lord and the son of righteousness. Watch what Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is writing this sometime between 760 and 740 B.C. Now, this is remarkable. It says that says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Who's that remind you of? Jesus. And I love this one. I love this one. And shall perform some of my pleasure, right? Mm, All of my pleasure. That really should only make you think of one man. There was only one man that came and always did the father's will. That's what Jesus said in John 8, 29. My father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Isn't he a beautiful picture of our savior? It's really beautiful. Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus will do all the pleasure of God. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. What did Jesus tell the apostles? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Are you seeing Jesus here? And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Isn't Jesus the foundation and cornerstone of the church? Now, the next verse, it should go into the first verse of Isaiah chapter 45. Yes. Watch what it says here about Cyrus. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. Who does that remind you of? Jesus. Christ means anointed. And to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holding. God the Father held the hand of God the Son throughout the entirety of his life and ministry. This is why they couldn't take him until it was time for him to be crucified. To subdue all nations before him, Jesus destroyed all of our enemies at the cross. And I love this. I will loose the loins of kings. That's awesome. 
Because remember Belshazzar and Daniel 5 at the disco party when they were drinking gold, uh, wine out of the gold and silver vessels and the fingers started writing on the wall, many, many tekelu farsin, you are found weighed, uh, you've been weighed on the balances and you are found wanting. And when he saw that, remember his, his knees smote and his hip, hip joints came out of joint. This is like 200 years before that. 200 years for people that say, well, the Bible is not the word of God. There's no way Isaiah could have known that. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. I'll loose the loins of kings. I love this one to open before him the two levy gates. I see this historically and I see it salvifically. Historically, our historians tell us that when Cyrus and Darius and the uh, Medo-Persians came in to take over Babylon, the gates mysteriously just opened up on their own. Is God in control of everything or what? And they just came in and took over the kingdom and they slew Belshazzar that night. But I see a greater reality here because I see the gates of hell being plundered and opened by King Jesus, who said the gates of hell shall not prevail and I will build my church. If you're here as a believer, it's because Christ broke through the bars and gates of hell, snatched you out of the fire and delivered you and brought you into the kingdom of Jesus. I'm thankful for it because I couldn't get out and you couldn't get out either. Right. And the gate shall not be shut. Really beautiful. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm hoping you're seeing your heavenly husband here and look in our text. You're in Ezra. He says. If you go down to verse two, thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, all authority and power has been put in my hands. All things have been given to me. Do you see Jesus here? It's really a foreshadow of Jesus who has all power and all authority. And then I love it. He says he's going to build his church. And then he says here, he's given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's charged me to build him a house. Like Jesus said, he came to build his church at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, which means all true believers are Jews. All true believers are Jews. Being a Jew never, ever had anything to do with heritage, pedigree or bloodline. It had everything to do with being born again and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looking at a bunch of Jews in this room, a bunch of Jews with all sorts of variations of your pigment levels. But you're a true Jew if you believe on Jesus, because if you're a believer, you've been circumcised where it counts in the heart. We are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. And we don't ever, ever, ever have confidence in the flesh. Isn't that what the Bible says? That's right. That's right. That's every believer. Now, think with me for a second. I see something also that's grand here. I see a foreshadow as Cyrus comes in and says, arise, move and go. I see a foreshadow of the heavenly Cyrus that came and by the shedding of his blood at the cross, He paid our ransom, paid our debt, and then tells you and I arise, move and go. But just like the first exodus, there had to be a ransom payment first. And I see a token of a ransom payment being made here in the neo exodus by two things. Two things. Number one, they were in Babylon. How long again? 70 years. The number 70, seven times 10 represents a perfect and complete number, a perfect and complete number. And they were only liberated after the duration of a perfect and complete time period. Just like you and I are not able to come out 
until a perfect and complete atonement has been made at the cross. It wasn't until the word said to tell us it is finished that you and I were liberated from sin and the wrath of God and from the bondage of the devil in this world system. Do you see that? The atonement of Jesus Christ was a perfect and complete atonement, wasn't it? That's that's Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he has forever perfected them that are sanctified. You and I, by trusting Jesus, apart from anything that we do, any works that we do, just by simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you in Christ, ready? All the very righteousness of God in him. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Because the perfect and complete atonement was made for you. And I got to show you this. Second Chronicles 36. You don't have to turn because in most of your Bibles, Ezra, uh, chap- Ezra chapter one's on one page. Second Chronicles 36 is on another page. I love when that happens. And I want you to see something here because I want you to see, again, a beautiful allusion to the atonement. If you're in Second Chronicles 36. Yes. Verse 18 and 19. This is pointing back to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by King Nebuchadnezzar. And it says in verse 18, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. That's King Neb. In verse 19, and they burnt the house of God. That's the temple, isn't it? Was the temple destroyed? Yep. And broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. As horrible as that is, I see a beautiful gospel truth. You and I come out. And you and I are set free because there was a temple that was destroyed. Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up again because the body of Christ was crucified and bruised and suffered under the wrath of God to fully propitiate and atone for our sins at the cross. Everybody who believes in him is free to go free to go, justified freely by his grace. Isn't that wonderful? And then, I love this, if we can get Ezekiel 37, 12 up. Ezekiel, when he was given that really enigmatic uh, task by God to go preach to a graveyard, remember that? Would you take that task? You better if the Lord tells you. Well, I better see you at the cemetery with your Bible preaching. Because he did. And the bones stood up, didn't they? And it says it was it was an exceeding great army. And he, but he had to prophesy to the four winds There we are with the winds again, representing the sovereign life giving efficacy of the Holy Ghost. But then it describes what happened after those bones stood up. The bones here in this text represent the people of God down in Babylon right now, as it were buried in Babylon, but not forgotten. It says, therefore, to Ezekiel prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, my people, I will open your what? your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Do you see it? So Israel coming out, as it were, is a picture of the resurrection, which we only have in Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Yes, shall he live. All right, let's go to the next point is point three a. Please turn to point three a on your outline. It should say, uh, The glorious Trinitarian reality in your redemption. There's a reason why you and I are Trinitarian. Well, number one, because the Bible teaches that there's one true and living God who exists in three persons. 
Moreover, we worship a triune God because not only has he revealed himself as triune, but all three persons are responsible for our salvation. So let me say it this way. The father thought you, the son bought you, and the spirit brought you. Does that make sense? We were thought, bought, and brought. Thought, bought, and brought. And I want to be able to show you. First, I want to show you in the text. I see an allusion to the Trinity in verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord, see the father there, stirred up the spirit, an allusion to the Holy Spirit of who? Cyrus. And we said Cyrus is a type of who? Beautiful allusion to the Trinity. Just like in the New Testament, the father sent the son and then at his baptism sent who? The Holy Spirit that empowered him and anointed him for his ministry. Isn't that true? And all three of them, as you go to 1 Peter 1, please, all three persons are responsible for your salvation. I want you to see this. Here. This is why we love on all three persons, don't we? And by the way, in, in, if you didn't know this, you can pray to any of the three persons of the Trinity at any time. I know primarily we pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. That's, that's what the scriptures would tell us. And yet at any time we can talk directly to Jesus. We can talk directly to the Holy Ghost. Isn't that wonderful? And they all love us and they all care about us. And if you are in first Peter chapter one, I want to show you something uh, beautiful here. And if we can get Matthew 28, 18 up, I hope I'm not going too fast. Matthew, actually 28, 19. Let's do that uh, for time's sake. And we're turned to first Peter. Chapter one. Our baptism services. We had baptism services uh, at our church maybe about a month ago. We had two of them, one for the men and one for the women. But every person that got in the water, we baptized them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because we want to honor and glorify all three persons who are responsible for that person's salvation that got in that water and came up out of that water by his grace. Watch what it says. Um, are we able to get Matthew twenty-eight nineteen up? If not, that's OK. I, I, OK, we'll, we'll work with this. This is just as good. Uh, we'll work with that one. That was just as good. OK. <laughs> all right. Go ye, Jesus says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's three persons. But it says name, not names. One God, all three persons together make up the one divine being. And yet that one true and living God consists of three persons, which means the father's God, the son is God, the spirit's God, but not three gods, three persons that make up the one true and living God. And we love on all of them. We love on all of them. And let me show you why. First Peter, first Peter one, because we always want to make sure our worship is according to understanding, lest it be pagan. Because paganism is passion without principle. We want to worship God in spirit and in truth with our understanding. All right. If you're in first Peter one, it says elect. I love that word because that means God was loving on me in eternity past. And he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. And all of you who believe he did the same for you. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. See, I told you, God thought you thought you. And that's the progonoski. He set his love and affection on you. And he foreordained you to salvation before he even put the stars in the sky. Beautiful. That's the father. That's why we love our daddy, don't we? 
That's right. And then it says through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. This is the order of our experience because God chose us in Christ before the world began. But we just didn't know we were living in sin, shaking our fist in God's faith, a face living under the wrath of God and the spirit of God through the proclamation of the gospel hunted us down, pricked us, changed our heart and drew us to Christ. Didn't he? That's right. That's right. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And then it says sanctification of the Holy Spirit. He set us apart and called us out of Babylon. And then it says unto obedience, because the spirit of God now reveals to us how we're saved and who made us righteous unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's Christ obedience that saves you, not yours. It's the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ that saves you, not any work that you perform. And God accepted his sacrifice. I'm so thankful. But how do you hold on? But how do you know? How can we really know that God, the father accepted Jesus sacrifice? I can tell you he raised him again from the grave on the third day for our justification, for our justification. So you see three persons here, right? All right. One more. Second Thessalonians. And we'll get back. I only have a couple more points left. Yeah, let's use Second Thessalonians two. And I, I really love, I, well, I love all of them. But, uh, all right. Second Thessalonians chapter two. This is really beautiful. Paul says, <clears throat> we are bound. Now, watch for the three persons here. He says, but we are bound to give thanks unto God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God, that's the father, hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. The truth, there is a person, which is Jesus Christ. I'm the way and the truth, right? But see where it says beloved of the Lord? That's Christ. That's Christ. What, isn't the love of God in Christ? And, and haven't we come to, to know experimentally the love of God by virtue of Christ coming and dying on the cross for us? Yes, we have. So the God there at the early part of the verse is the father. The Lord there is the son. And obviously the spirit there is the spirit, isn't it? Let me show you one more. We'll stay in Second Thessalonians. Just look at chapter three. Second Thessalonians chapter three. Uh, verse four and five. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, we have confidence in the Lord touching you or concerning you <clears throat> that you both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. You see the Trinity there? Christ is the son of God. Second person of the Trinity. The love of God is our heavenly father. And the first uh, uh, Lord there in verse verse uh, five and the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And again, all three persons are active and responsible for our salvation. And this is why we give all three persons all the glory and credit for our salvation. Go ahead and go back to Ezra. As you're turning back to Ezra chapter one, I'll just throw this at you. You you know this. And I, I think this is a verse that's quoted here a lot. Well, we quote it a lot, too. In the multitude of counselors, there's what? There's safety. Right. And, and really that word safety there can be translated salvation. And those counselors there, guess who they are? Father ultimately in the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in the inner Trinitarian council between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they came up with the scheme of redemption before the foundation of the world, and they saw 
to it that it would be perfectly perfected by all three persons in that, if you will, unilateral agreement between, between God and God, fulfilling all the conditions to make us accepted in Christ. It's really beautiful. Let's go to our next point, point four. I love this. The beautiful coherency and seamless harmony of the Bible. I love this because there's so many mockers and scoffers that like to attack the Bible today, right? And it's good that we have a little bit of ammunition in our holster, right, when we're talking to people. You do it in love. You do it because you care about people and you want to see them saved. It's not about fighting. Uh, We want to be light way more than heat. We want to see people liberated and eyes open and we want to see people see people saved. But we have to be prepared. So when we hear people try to claim, well, the Bible is not really the word of God and You know, there was just a conspiracy of men that kind of got together one night in a dark, smoky room and just made up all these books. Right. They say crazy stuff like that. Right. Know this about the Bible. The Bible was written over a period of fifteen hundred years. By 40 different authors from three different continents in three different languages and all the books and all the authors and all their testimonies all testify to the same thing and the same person, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's right. That's right. Ultimately, there's only one author. And it's God himself. Now, I want you to see this. I see this in our text. Again, it's in verse. We're going to get past verse one, I promise. Look at verse one, it says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Now, this is Ezra writing this, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So there's a consistency and a coherency between Ezra and Jeremiah. The prophets are are a consistent and they're confirming one another. He's saying Jeremiah prophesied that these things that, that they would be fulfilled. And then the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Well, guess what? The writer of Second Chronicles testified to the same thing in verse 21. Daniel testified to this, too, that they would be in Babylon 70 years and they would come out. Jeremiah testified they'd be in Babylon 70 years and they would come out. And then Isaiah, in like manner, not only prophesied of these things, but he told us the name of the deliverer. What was his name again? Cyrus. This is what's awesome. Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would deliver the people before there was even a Cyrus. Mm hmm. So Isaiah says these things in 740, B.C., but Cyrus doesn't come and deliver the people of God till 536. So this is over 200 years before Cyrus came and almost 150 years before Cyrus was even born. And yet God not only prophesied that there would be a deliverer that would come, but he, he told us what his name would be. Is that crazy? Now, you know, Isaiah didn't know that. He had to have the spirit of God that said, I'm going to send a deliverer and his name is going to be Cyrus. Guess what his name was? Cyrus. And and God had to orchestrate it to make sure he brought the right parents together that they would name him Cyrus. He would grow up in the right family, in the right kingdom, do well, advance, prosper and be king and be successful in his exploits and take over all these kingdoms and be in the position to come in and set God's people free. Is God good or what? It's awesome. Our God is awesome. Absolutely awesome. Now, remember that when you hear people that say, well, the uh, the scriptures are not inspired by God. You say, well, how did Isaiah know this 200 years before there was even a Cyrus? Not possible. It proves the inspiration 
of Scripture. And then our text says here in verse one of Ezra, it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. So he proclaimed it and put it also in writing. Do you see Christ there? Isn't Christ God who came in the flesh and came and proclaimed and preached? Did Christ come and preach? Is Jesus God come to preach? But then he, via the apostles, put it in writing, which is the gospel, i.e. the New Testament, that was circulated through the apostles. See the beautiful foreshadow of Jesus? So this is how this works. If we can get Ecclesiastes up, uh, 1211, I love it. Ecclesiastes 1211. And when we talk to people, they say, well, men wrote the Bible. Say, yes. Yeah, they did. Under inspiration of the spirit of God. Yeah. God superintended what the men wrote. We don't ever want to say no. The, the book didn't just fall out of the sky. Right. God did use men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's how we explain that. Right. And they, they read all these other books and believe all these other books. And they don't have problem with those books that are written by men. But as soon as they get to the Bible, they say, well... Right. Do you ever read any other books? Yeah, I got 30 books over here in my library. Well, you got to throw those away, too. Yeah, throw them away. (laughs) All right. Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes 12, the words of the wise are as goads. All true believers in Christ are wise. We get our wisdom from Christ, don't we? The words from the wise are as goads. That's like a pricking stick that you use to to prick an ox or a mule to get it in the way. If it's going wrong and it it pricks it. This is what the word of God does to people. That's why a lot of people don't like to read the Bible. Or why a lot of churches stop preaching the Bible and they they replace it with entertainment and singing and dancing and clowning. That's what they do because they don't want that goat in their tail. It hurts. It hurts. Right. Doesn't it hurt? But it hurts so good. Lord, go me. Just save me. Just save me. And as nails fastened by the masters of assembly, the word of God has penetrating efficacy. Remember, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Right. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It has a a, a lasting, piercing efficacy on all that God is saving. I want God's word nailed to my heart and I don't ever want it to be removed. And yet I see Christ here, too, in a couple different ways. Number one, the nails here refer to the contents of all of the book of Scripture. They all point to Christ who was nailed to the cross for our sins. Don't all the scriptures point to that ultimately? They all do. And by masters of assembly, these are those who have been entrusted with the word of God as teachers to be able to go out and teach. And really, that's what all of us are called to. Not just pastors and elders, but our job is to serve you, to labor and study to communicate the truth to you that you might take it, imbibe it, inculcate it, and then take it out to others and communicate it to them that they might be saved. So this really applies to all of us. And God uses all these masters of assembly, but ultimately it says which are given from only one shepherd, only one shepherd. And so this would be the Lord God and and specifically who came in the person of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of his sheep that taught his disciples the gospel and then by his spirit, circulated it in writing in the New Testament. This is why we have it today, because of the goodness of God. Point five, we're almost there. 
5.5. I know we have Lord's table, so I'm trying not to go too long. Point number five, a Cyrus and Judite collaboration. I hope you see this in the text. Now we get past verse one (laughs) and watch this. Verse two. So what does Cyrus say in his proclamation? Well, verse two, it records it. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And watch this. And he has charged me. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. See that? So, so, so Cyrus is saying God has charged me to do the building. And yet he says in verse three, he turns right around in verse three. And he says, well, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord. The Lord God of Israel. Well, who's doing the building, Cyrus or the people of God? Both. Who's doing the building, Jesus Christ or his church? Both. Remember, it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And he turned right around and gave the gospel to 12 grown men and told them to go out and preach the gospel. And he would go with them and work with them. Mark 16, 20. He was working with them and through them by his spirit because we can't get the job done apart from his power and grace and spirit. Right. Right. But yet you and I, this is tight. You and I are. Our, our colleagues with God. We get to co-labor together with God. And I love this. Look at verse six. He's going to give you everything that you need if you tremble and, and get nervous. Because, um, you know, we can get nervous sometimes when we think about the task of going out and evangelizing. Right? You, you mean me? Yes, you. Yes, you. Right. That'll get you praying, huh? Lord, be with me. Right. Help be with my mouth. God says, I got you. All right. He's going to give us everything we need for life and godliness. And I see this in verse six. If you go to verse six, it says, and all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver and gold. Who made sure they had silver and gold to uh, fill the temple? Cyrus did. Cyrus here points to who? Christ. So the silver and gold makes it, it, it demonstrates that God's people would be filled with the riches of his grace. They would be filled with the riches of his grace. All God's people are because in Christ we have everything we need for life and godliness. And the silver and the gold here have beautiful signification. See the word gold here in verse six. It it, it would point to God's intrinsic glory. And the silver here would be an emblem of God's redemptive glory in Jesus Christ, namely the gospel of God's glory. And he's filled us with that glorious gospel as earthen vessels who have been housed with the treasure of God that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. Isn't that what Paul said? Right. And so he gives us every, listen, the gospel works. It works. Preach and pray. Preach and pray. Preach and pray. People will get saved in God's own time. God's own time. So I'm thankful he's going to give us his spirit. He's going to give us a a, a knowledge. He's going to give us power. He's going to give us strength. He's going to give us everything that we need. He's not going to send us out empty handed. Not going to send us out empty handed. So you and I, like God's people in Babylon, we've been called out, but we've been called out to call out. We've been called out to call out. So we're called out. But our job is now to share the gospel that other men and women who are under the wrath of God might be called out by God's love and grace and mercy, too. But he's not going to do it apart from his church. He's going to save his church by his church. By his obedient church.
Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to see this. I love the reality of being a co-worker with God. I don't have no business on his team. <laughs> hey, God don't need a team, does he? Well, he's already a team, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't need us, but he's pleased to use us. And I'm excited. I'm, Lord, use me. I'm like Isaiah, Lord, send me. Right? Who will go for us? I'll go. Don't you want to be used of the Lord? I want to be used of the Lord more in 2023 than I was in 2022. That's my prayer. Please use me, Lord. All right. First Corinthians three, nine. We're considering collaboration and and being colleagues, if you will, with God working together. You know, the uh, Corinthian church was very carnal. They would kind of pit their teachers over against each other. Well, one group would say I'm with Paul and the other one would say I'm Apollos and another one would say I'm with Cephas, I'm with Peter. But they were all gifts from God. And so Paul said, listen, uh, uh, one plants, one waters, but this is about God. He gives the increase, right? Notice what he says in verse nine, referring to he and Apollos. And then secondarily, all of God's people, because we work together with him. He says, for we're laborers together with who? God. See that? We're laborers together with God. And then he says to the church, you're his husband, you're, husband, you're his field, you're his planning, and you're God's building. But he did it through the instrumentality of the preaching of the gospel through the apostles and faithful ministers. Same thing with us. Same thing with us. So be encouraged in that calling. God will be with you. Ask him to use you. Ask him to use you. Now, I also want you to see um, 2 Corinthians 6 while we're here. And we'll get back and then start to wrap it up. If you please turn to 2 Corinthians Chapter six. And if we can, for time's sake, just put second Corinthians one twenty on the overhead, maybe. Then we'll just turn to one more instead of two to save time. Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter six, verse one. Paul really says it here again. This verse really, really excites me. Again, I love the reality of working together with God being. Aren't we yoked together with Christ anyway? That's right. Second Corinthians six, one, Paul says, we then after he talks about us being the very righteousness of God in Christ. So he saves us by his atoning work. Second Corinthians five, twenty one. And then he puts us to work. Second Corinthians six, one. We then as workers together with him. See it? Workers together with God. Now, how do you wrap your mind around that? The true and the living God. Infinite, immeasurable. Uh, uh, inscrutable in all his ways, past finding out he fills heaven and earth. And yet he condescends, if you will, to work with his church. That's mind blowing. Sinners like myself. And he's pleased to work. And, and, and we sin and we have shortcomings and infirmities, but he washes away by the, by the blood of his son and says, keep it moving. I'm still with you. Promise never to leave you nor forsake you. Let's get this job done. It's really awesome. It's really awesome. And we get the best retirement benefit package in the universe, huh? Isn't that good? It's beautiful. And workers together with him, I beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. That's a a very important warning and exhortation too. We want to take heed how we hear the word of God. How does your heart respond to the gospel? Does it respond in malleability and pliability and receptiveness? Does it respond in faith? When the word is preached to you, is it mixed in faith? Or does your heart harden when you hear the word of God? We all have to ask ourselves that question. This is a sort of spiritual thermometer. It's a sort of spiritual litmus test. You can tell the spiritual health 
of your soul by how you respond to the word of God. Does it still move you? Does it still fill you with joy? Does it convict you? That's still a good sign, even though it hurts. Does it goad you like we talked about? Because he wounds and he heals. But you don't ever want to find yourself not having any response at all to the gospel or hardening to the gospel. You want to call out to the great physician. He's a white coat you can actually trust. All right, let me hurry up and get to my last point. Check this verse out here. I love this. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen. All of God's promises are kept and fulfilled perfectly in only one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not yes and no. They're yay, 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 yay. Yes, yes, yes. Right. But it goes further. It says, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. So all these things that God has purposed to bring to pass, he's going to do it. And yet he's going to do it through his people. And specifically through the preaching of the apostles and yet applicably to all of us who respond to the word of God in obedience and love on sinners and communicate and evangelize and witness to sinners. God's going to save the elect that he's promised to Jesus, but he's going to do it through us and going to get all the glory. And we're going to be happy about it. We're going to get crowns and we're going to wear them for like five seconds. And then we're going to throw them down at his feet because he gets all the glory. That's right. And yet he wants to use us. It's crazy. Let's go back and wrap it up. We've got to wrap it up. Got to get ready for the table. Uh, please go back to Ezra for my closing point. Point 5A on your outline. <clears throat> I want to close with a question. Sort of interrogative question for all of us. Child of God, are you taking heed to your heavenly calling by our heavenly Cyrus to arise, move, and go out of Babylon? This is the question we all, we all have to ask ourselves because if you're a professing Christian, your middle name is actually Ecclesia. We're the called out ones. But are we living and acting like called out ones? Are we still comfortable in Babylon and making that our home and our identity? Look at verse four in our text. He says, whosoever remains in any place where he what? Sojourns. True believers are sojourners. We're moving, arising, moving, going. We're passing through. This is not our home. We're headed toward a permanent, everlasting home. And it's not here. It's not here. 2 Corinthians 6, 17, if we can get that up on the overhead. Know this, you and I have a dual citizenship. You got two ID cards. You got a Babylonian ID card, but you have a uh, heavenly Jerusalem ID card. And the latter supersedes the former. It supersedes the former. We're in the world, but we're not of the world, right? So let's end on a real practical note. Okay, got that, got that. What does that look like, though, on our day-to-day boots on the ground kind of level. What does it look like? Paul says it here that we're to come out. Wherefore, come out from among them. That's the title of our message. Arise, move, and go. Come out and be ye separate. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart from the world. 
If we're in the world, but we assimilate and capitulate to the world, then we're not the holy ecclesia called out ones and we'll have no success or efficacy winning men and women to Christ. Because if we're conforming to the world, we're essentially tacitly saying that, that it's OK to remain the way you are. That's why we can't bring the world into the church. So he says, wherefore, come ye out from among them and be ye separate. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be okay with your separateness. Be okay with your other thanness. And then he says, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. You and I live in a cesspool as we make our way through this world, right? And I'll receive you. So those are conditional requirements that you and I are to partake in. What does that look like on a day to day basis? Let me give you like four or five things and then we can go to the table and then we can go eat. Number one, what it does not look like is you and I holding to a sort of overrealized eschatology. We have dual citizenship, but we don't want to act like we're already in heaven. We're already floating. You didn't float in here. You didn't float. Not yet. Not yet. We're not flying yet. We're not walking through all. You didn't get your glorified, resurrected body yet. Right. So we don't want to act like and be so disconnected as if we don't have real issues and struggles that we got to deal with on a day to day basis. As if we're not simultaneously sinful and righteous at the same time. We're still working it out as whips. Works in process, aren't we? That's right. That's right. So we don't want to hold a sort of postmodern ideology as if we can make up our own truth as we go. We don't want to do that. That's number one. Number two, coming out of Babylon looks like you and I not compromising the gospel at all. Once we water it down, it has no saving efficacy. If it loses its salt, wherewith shall it be salted? All we can do is lovingly communicate the gospel to lost men and women. We want to do it as lovingly as we can, but we don't want to change the content. It needs to retain its potency in order to save. Lord, help us. Because I know we don't want people hating us, right? We don't want people hating us, but I'd rather have them hate me than God hate me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's right. Number three, it looks like you and I coming out of Babylon looks like you and I loving people, but still telling them the truth. I love you, but I don't agree with what you do. I love you, but I don't agree with that lifestyle. That's not phobic. Did you get it? That's not phobic. That's loving. That's loving. To harden against the gospel sounds closer to phobic than the other. When you love people. You tell them the truth. Love tells the truth. Love tells the truth. Coming out of Babylon means you and I not allowing Babylon to confuse us because Babel means confusion. The world that we live in, the reprobate society that we live in is extremely confused today, isn't it? The reprobate culture that we live in. Truth is very simple. The believer's life is a very simple life. The Bible life is a very simple life. There's only two genders, not 86. Right. That's right. Just two. I'm thankful for simplicity. Jesus said in the beginning, God made a male and female. That's it. That's it. After three and four and five, we start messing up the math anyway. Right. 
simple truth says that marriage is only between a man and a woman. That's it. Heterosexual. Two people entering into the confines of a marriage covenant in the sight of holy God. That's it. That's it. Coming out of Babylon requires the the simplicity of this, that God created us. We didn't evolve or explode. We didn't come from a big bang. The true and the living God made us in his image and in his likeness. Isn't that right? That's very simple. The truth is very simple. A woman is an adult female human. That's it, right? That question is not that hard. The truth is very simple. You and I are not God's. You and I are not God's. Very prevalent today, isn't it? There's only one true and living God. You and I ain't him. We're made by his grace. We're made in his image in the Imago Dei. But there's only one true and living God who has revealed himself to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The simple truth tells us that your government also is not God. And you and I are not called to be slaves. Christ came to set us free. If the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. We've struggled over the last two or three years with governmental overreach as we have governmental powers and authorities striving for a sort of totalitarian rule and regimen by which they can control everything we do and say and think as well, too. And that's not God's purpose and calling for you and I. Coming out of Babylon means not partaking in the wickedness of our culture, but reproving it, reproving it. Ephesians 5 would tell us that. And lastly, I'll close by saying this. Coming out of Babylon means seeking heavenly Jerusalem. Are you seeking heavenly Jerusalem? Are you doing what the Lord Jesus Christ said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Seek those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That looks like you and I seeking a heavenly savior. Through his heavenly word. By fellowship and worship with heavenly people. Worship of the true and the living God is a non-negotiable. We don't get to negotiate worship. That's a non-negotiable. The Bible says do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Isn't that right? That's right. And coming out of Babylon looks like you and I fellowshipping with heavenly people and staying on a heavenly path. And that person who embodies that path is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on him. Amen. Amen.